Chapter 13 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dodie. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 13 A Romance of Regret. And so, in the stillness of half past four in the morning, with the chief figures of Gladys's great world from which she had been striving to hide her story sleeping in profound unsuspicion all about her, the hidden and unrepented romance of Gladys was at last unfolded to Cordelia. Gladys, Esther, and Mitchell all contributing their portions to the history. In the telling there was bickering and denial from Gladys, contradictions, explanations, elaborations, corrections from the other two. It revealed no new aspect of Gladys's character, it merely threw into stronger, more dramatic light the Gladys that was known. An heiress of leisure who believed that to her belonged the world, who loved whatever shone brilliantly at the top, whose egotistical will brushed aside all opposition and seized with swift directness what it desired, and who dodged and frantically ran away from any unpleasant consequences of having had her own imperious way. The tale was a portrait of Gladys's soul, but in truth, not of her alone, for New York City, America, has its ten thousand Gladyses, duplicates in soul differing only in the details of their different social levels. Reduced to its essentials and arranged in chronological order, the history which the three told in fragments was a story which in its earlier phases was matched by scores of love affairs that developed swiftly and rushed to swift consummation during the reckless emotionalism of the Great War. In the Paris of that period, romance took no thought of the morrow, that vast belt of bursting shells and stifling gas which had bounded northern France had destroyed all certainty of a morrow. Today was the only certainty, and recklessly, without thought of the future, romance seized its only chance. In 1916, Gladys had met a Sergeant Grayson of the Canadian forces while he was spending his leave in Paris. He was the latest of those young heroes who, at that period, were shining for their brief day with the glory of a supreme fixed star, only to have their brilliant flames flicker swiftly into oblivion. During this day of his glory he was being universally praised, and he had been slated for a commission. The glamour of his fame— the adulation with which his friends exalted him made him from the first moment a figure of super-fascination to Gladys. And even when on the day of their first meeting he informed her that he was a citizen of the United States and that until he had crossed into Canada and enlisted he had been a mechanic in a Detroit automobile factory. Even that admission of his lowly origin had not lessened her fervid adoration. He was a great hero, the hero of the hour. He was utterly splendid. Within two days they were engaged, and they were determined upon marriage before his return to the front. Gladys now confided her great honor and happiness to Esther Stevens, who was at this time confined to the hospital of the Countess de Crecy with influenza. Esther had opposed the marriage. "'Do you think he's not good enough for me?' Gladys had demanded. "'Because he was once a mechanic?' "'He may be altogether too good for you.' I can't say, since I have never seen him. But that has nothing whatsoever to do with my attitude. I am thinking of you both when I say the two of you are now living in a period of hysteria, 
and when I ask you both to remember that your marriage, entered into in this time of high emotion, will be lived out through sober, commonplace years. Neither of you is now in a state of mind to choose the person who will best suit you during the unexciting and perhaps disillusioning years which will come when this awful war is over. Be good friends in the meantime. But wait till peace and a normal state of mind return before you decide upon marriage. Then you won't give your consent? Most definitely I will not. Later on you will thank me for holding you back from such a course. Gladys had argued no further and had not told Sergeant Grayson of Esther's objection. She was not going to let any stick like Esther tell her whom and when she could marry. She had taken the lead in the matter, and two days later she and Sergeant Grayson, accompanied by his best friend Sergeant Farrell, had slipped away and been secretly married. Three days after the marriage, Sergeant Grayson had left Paris to rejoin his company. He had not been gone another three days, less than a week had passed since the marriage, when Gladys had begun to regret her action, and every day her regret had become more acute. It grew into shame. Each day in that period of the war had its own brilliant hero, and in the swift succession of radiances that flashed across the sky of heroism, the fame of Sergeant Grayson was sadly dimmed. In fact, it was being all but forgotten, save by a very few. In that epoch of great and crowding events, a single day was a long span of life for average heroship. With Grayson's fame faded, his glamour gone, Gladys was confronted with the unromantic reality that she was secretly married to a nobody who was just an automobile mechanic. Her soul writhed with the awful humiliation of her situation. She, Gladys Norworth, married to an ordinary mechanic, what would her world say when it learned? What was she ever, ever going to do? And then, when Grayson had left her hardly more than a fortnight, and before his actual promotion to a lieutenancy, there had come the news of his death in action. This news had gained no more space than a brief paragraph. That was how long heroship lasted in those tense days. Gladys had wept when she heard this news. She had wept from relief. Since soldiers had to die anyhow, his death had been providential. How lucky she had been in that the marriage had been a secret one. Now, no one need ever know of her shame, not even Esther, who had advised against the marriage. His death had given her story its only possible happy ending. Perhaps no young widow was ever before so happy as Gladys. A month after her husband's death, Sergeant Farrell, who had just gained his commission as a lieutenant, reappeared in Paris and called upon the widow of his friend. From the first moment of his call, Gladys made no attempt to conceal that she considered her marriage a terrible mesalliance that she was happy to be so easily freed from such an entanglement. Lieutenant Farrell called again, and on this occasion she noted that his manner was strained, embarrassed. It frightened her. And finally, she drew from Farrell that which made her profoundly grateful to the great luck which had been guarding her. Before Sergeant Grayson had gone into his final action, so Farrell told her, he had had a premonition that his end was close upon him, and he had confessed to Farrell that some fifteen months earlier he had married a poor French girl in Paris, and he had asked his friend in the event of his death to carry out his instructions for providing for this earlier wife. 
to attend to these instructions was Farrell's present business in Paris. Through Lieutenant Farrell, Gladys met the French wife. There was an infant of four or five months, also a wedding certificate. With this new development, Gladys at first went almost frantic with fear, horror, with even in greater shame, a bigamous wife, no marriage at all. The bigamous wife of a mere mechanic, hardly better than her own chauffeur. How her friends, how all Europe, how all America would laugh at her if they knew the truth. And then she remembered. Grayson was dead. The marriage had been a secret. In response to her frenzied appeal, Farrell promised silence, as much for his dead comrade's good name as for her own. Again, Gladys was saved. No one need ever know. It would be just as though it at all had never happened. She felt an inner shame, a vast chagrin over her secret humiliation, and she knew she would always feel the chagrin and shame, but the world would never know of her shame. That was the great thing. The world would never know. Oh, but how luck had been with her when she had decided to keep that awful marriage secret. Relief flooded into her, her old pride in herself returned. But this relief and pride were of brief duration. Soon Gladys knew she was to be a mother. Once more, a frenzy of fear and shame seized upon her, unsettling all control, all reason. No longer was silence possible. She told Esther of the clandestine marriage, told her everything, and demanded to be saved. Esther wasted no single word in reproof. She suggested that they investigate that earlier marriage. The frantic Gladys would not hear of this. The marriage was all right, and investigation would lead inevitably to the discovery of her own illegal marriage and of her shame. Esther tried to discuss a reasonable course with her, but Gladys would have no such procedure. She had thought of a way by which the world would never know. If Esther would not help her, she would kill herself. Esther had had to yield to Gladys's plan, in its essentials, a very ancient plan. At this time, France was already asking aid of its friends in handling the problem of its war orphans. In conformity with Gladys's demand, Esther let it be known that she and Gladys had decided to adopt an infant and had her application registered with the proper relief organizations. Thus, suspicion was forestalled. Then, through the kindness of the Countess de Crecy, the two were transferred to duty in a hospital at Dijon. Shortly thereafter, they took a secluded villa in the hills outside the city, and in this closely guarded sanctuary, Francois was born. When Gladys's strength was fully regained, she and Esther returned to Paris, where Esther sent word to the various relief organizations with which she had previously filed applications that they had been suited in the matter of an orphan. Thereupon, in due legal form, Esther and Gladys jointly adopted little Francois, and on their return to New York at the close of the war, this joint adoption had been confirmed. In Paris, toward the end of the war, Farrell, now a captain, had once more called on Gladys. He had seen the boy, and Gladys had told him of the adoption. He had smiled, but by no word had he given a hint that he was aware of the deception. Back in America, Gladys considered that all was safely hidden. She was now even grateful that the marriage had not been legal was not even reconciled to Francois' illegitimacy. For had the marriage been legal, she would, in her first terror at learning she was to become a mother, 
have made known the marriage, and that marriage to a mechanic would have made her an absurd figure to be forever laughed at. Yes, granting her original mistake, things had all turned for the very best. For two years since her return to America, Gladys had felt the security, though keeping to herself, and given thanks to her protecting stars. And then one day Farrell, now a civilian, had called upon her. He was in a sad financial way, he had told her. He had regretfully referred to an episode of Parisian Days and had intimidated that he might be driven to make profitable use elsewhere of his knowledge of that adventure and of the maternity of Francois, offspring of that brief and regretted romance. The old-time fear of Gladys had leaped from its peaceful grave in twice-bold its former greatest panic. The upshot was that Farrell had become her butler, and his butler wages were but a small fraction of the money he was being paid. Such was the story that came from Gladys, Esther, and Mitchell. Through it all, Mitchell smiled with satiric, imperturbable good humor, every moment perfectly at his ease, with no evidence of feeling guilt or shame. There was one aspect of the situation that still puzzled Cordelia. Why should Mitchell, able to make Gladys pay any price for his silence, have chosen to become her butler? During the recital, he had apparently shown no desire to hold anything back. So Cordelia now asked him this question. I was still suffering from having been gassed, he answered. I thought that a good home, a quiet life, and light work would help my recovery. His quizzical, amiable smile made Cordelia feel that he was playing with her. You said something of the same sort to me the other day, but that wasn't your real reason? It was a real reason, but possibly not my greatest reason. You see, Grayson was my best friend, and despite his somewhat oriental aptitude for wives, I admired him as a real man. I rather resented the manner in which Gladys promptly began to look down upon him, even before she knew of his instinct for connubial plurality. And somehow, after she did learn, I was yet more resentful of the way she came to be ashamed of him, not because of his muley rose failing, but because he had been a mechanic. So it pleased my low, vengeful nature to be close to Gladys, where I could rub things in a bit and watch her squirm. That may also have been a reason, said Cordelia, but it doesn't sound like your main reason. And right you are, Miss Marlowe. His smile was bland, enigmatic. But that's all the witness can admit at the present moment. Perhaps you will someday learn the main reason. Perhaps you will not. It will depend very largely on what our dear Gladys does. Through all the talk, Gladys had maintained an attitude of belligerent resentment toward the others, of an indignant, poignant sympathy for herself. She now burst forth. It's not fair the way you've talked about me, she cried. And it's not fair the fix I'm in and the way I suffer. I'm not to blame. I never did anything wrong. Not intentionally. People suffer sometimes as much from their foolish acts as from their sins, said Esther. I wasn't foolish. I was just plain unlucky. And because I was merely unlucky, I've got this thing hanging over my head and with Mitchell always threatening to tell. If you had only acknowledged your marriage at the time as I begged you to, Esther remarked with the bored patience of one repeating an oft-made argument, 
and had not tried to conceal the other things, people would have been inclined to regard you merely as unfortunate, and many people would have sympathized with you, and by now the whole affair would have been accepted and partly forgotten. And you would not have Mitchell and his threats hanging over your head. Exactly what I have often told Gladys myself, commented the bland voice of Mitchell. No use talking about what I might have done, Gladys cried bitterly. Even now, Esther continued, it would be best for you if you told the facts. That would free you instantly of Mitchell. It's the truth, agreed Mitchell. It would end me in a second. I have often told you that, Gladys, and in the future. Please remember that I am now giving you that advice again. So go to it, Gladys. Tell everything. And have everybody laugh at me and turn away from me? Her voice was again rising toward a shriek of exasperated rebellion at her unjust fate. I may be suffering, I may be pain, but what I've got is worth what I pay. All the same, said Esther with a grim sigh. I wish it would all come out somehow so we'd be through with this business. The very idea was too much for Gladys's raw nerves. She again lost herself in panic and seized Esther's arm. Esther, if that ever happens, you'll stand by me. Remember, you promised. You'll stand by me, Esther, like you said. On the condition we agreed upon. You mean Francois? Yes. But Esther, you know Francois is the only thing that keeps me here in your house. I care for him more than you do, and I'm a better mother to him. He's to be mine, all mine, remember? You still promise that? Gladys wet her lips. Her green eyes were still bright with their frantic apprehension. Yes, yes, she whispered. Before Cordelia could even wonder what this unknown compact might be, Gladys had whirled about and had cringing, fawning hands upon her. You see, I'm just the victim of bad luck, Cordy, don't you? You understand that, don't you, dear? And you'll never tell what you've heard tonight. Promise me you'll never tell. Think how it would hurt me. Give me your word. Cordelia remembered her mission in this house, her obligation to Mr. Franklin. Her reply was carefully evasive. I give you my promise that I shall never say a word to injure you. Thank you, Cordy. Oh, thank you. And then at once, her hands menacingly crooked, she was glaring at Cordelia in furious, suspicious hatred. I don't believe you. It'll be just like you to tell Jerry Plimpton. You'd play any trick to get him away from me. Gladys. Esther caught her arm and pulled her backward. Once more, there was a swift change in Gladys. Again, she cringed and cowered. I didn't mean it, Cordy. I just went out of my head. That's all. I just went out of my head. If you'd been through all I've been through, you wouldn't blame me for forgetting myself occasionally. You're coming straight to bed, ordered Esther, in undisguised disgust. And with a good night to Cordelia, she led Gladys toward the door. Mitchell held the door open for them and bowed and whispered a courteous, pleasant-toned, Good night as they passed. Then he turned and moved quickly back to Cordelia and smiled at her his provokingly ironic but good-natured smile. There are a few things we still have to say, you and I, Miss Marlowe. I shall call for you in ten minutes. I'd rather like a ride in that car of yours. You might change into something suitable. 
With that, Mitchell moved swiftly out and closed the door. End of chapter 13